Hey there, everybody. You are listening to This Show is So Gay. I'm your host, Ken Schneck. This is episode number 410. As always, you can get in touch with us by dropping us a line. Send an email on over to ken at thisshowissogay.com. Stroll on over to thisshowissogay.com to learn all about the fun things happening with our little gay radio show that could. You can follow us on Twitter. The handle is This Show Is So Gay. And of course, go on over to that Facebook. Type in This Show Is So Gay. Like us, because we sure as heck like you. We have an incredible show for you this week. Let me introduce our guest to you. Kelsey Louie is the Chief Executive Officer of GMHC, Gay Men's Health Crisis, the world's first and nation's leading provider of HIV and AIDS-related care, prevention services, and advocacy. Kelsey's past professional titles include Chief Operating Officer, Chief Program Officer, and Senior Vice President of HIV and AIDS Treatment and Support Services at Harlem United Community AIDS Center, Inc., where he worked for seven years overseeing their $42 million budget and managing operations, administration, finance, development programs, and so much more. Prior to Harlem United, Kelsey served as Director of Queens Family Support Services at New York Foundling and Director of Prevention Services at Veritas Therapeutic Community. He is a fellow NYU Violet, which will always earn a shout out for me. And he is here with us right now. Kelsey Louie, welcome to this show is so gay. Thank you for having me. That was a lot. (laughs) Thanks. So we have so much ground to cover, Kelsey. Are you ready? I'm ready. When little Kelsey Louie was running around growing up, was he always saying, I want to be the chief executive officer of a nonprofit? You know, I was saying that I wanted to be a doctor. And then when people would ask me why, I said that I wanted to help other people. And as I got older, I understood that there were many more ways besides physical health to help other people. And then um, I fell into, or I got introduced to psychology and then social work. And then I realized social work was what I wanted to do. And then um, after that, I did know that I wanted to go into business. And so I did get my MBA after my MSW. And uh, a CEO job is the probably the, the best job that you can have that combines an, M- an MSW and an MBA. But the MBA is from that other college. We don't talk about that place. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Talk to me about early days working in social work. You know, we, we've talked about social work so much over the past nine years of doing this show. It's pretty heavy stuff, Kelsey. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's hard. It, it's hard, but it's rewarding, you know, and I, I love it. I have always loved it. In fact, I call myself a social worker who has an MBA, as opposed to a business person who has an MSW. And so I still identify as a social worker. In fact, I teach at NYU School of Social Work, and I really love that time where I get to help mold new social workers. It's such a rewarding job. Do you see a narrative thread, particularly in your students, of people who want to go into that field? What is present and and can lead to success in people embracing social work? You know, I mean, obviously a desire to help. But compassion, patience, and a real desire to change the world. And sometimes that might mean one person at a time, or it might mean groups of people at a time or policies, but um, it has to come from somewhere. And you can't teach it. 
So it has to be this innate quality of wanting to help other people. Nice. We're going to talk about burnout a little bit later on, uh, specifically when we talk about HIV and AIDS-related work. But can we talk more generally about burnout and social work? Because that's a real thing, Kelsey. Yeah. You know, it's one of the things that the schools of social work we teach, but I don't know that we spend enough time talking about it. And it's hard because this work can be very taxing. It can be very emotional. And, um, you know, I think a lot of times people say things like, you know, work isn't personal. But if you're a social worker, this work is very personal, Um, especially if you have uh, personal motivation to be or to work with a particular group. And burnout is really important, um, which is one of the reasons why I really like to spend a lot of time appreciating our staff. Um, There are many antidotes to um, burnout, Um, things that we all know like, you know, trying not to take your work home or trying to set some boundaries or trying to have a manageable workload. But I think there are other things that social work managers can do, like showing appreciation for your staff, um, helping staff understand why they're doing this work, and helping them, if they don't see it immediately, helping them understand the impact of their work. The people at GMHC Um, We do life-saving work every single day. And even if you're not a social worker, um, you could be doing, if you're doing finance or if you're a maintenance worker, I try to connect with them, with the mission, with what they do to help them understand that they too are saving lives. Are you one of those weird unicorns who has somehow mastered not taking work home with you? Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, This is one of those things where I guess it's uh, do as I say, not as I do. Um, So, yeah, so I, as a seasoned social worker, I've learned to, a a little bit, to separate, and we all have to at some point, but this work affects me. And, you know, actually, I have a funny story. I, um, you know, we created a video, uh, a short video that explains the work that GMHC does. I edited it. I reviewed it, I watched it many times, we played it at our gala, and then I played it for a smaller meeting of maybe 20 of our donors, and it was the beginning of this meeting. And it was my turn to speak right after the video ended, and I was really choked up. And I I, I needed a few moments to gather myself because that video was so moving. And, And I think if that can still happen to you, then you haven't been, you're not burnt out yet. And so... So it was really interesting because I think, you know, we need to remember why we do this work. And sometimes people need reminders of why they do do this work. As I read in your intro, GMHC is is not the first HIV and AIDS-related work that you've done. Was there a particular point in your career where you said, yeah, this is just the direction I want to go? Yeah, you know, um, it actually um, kind of fell into my lap by accident. So I wanted to work in the LGBT field. And um, so I actually spent a little time at GMHC in 2006, um, some time in the child welfare world. And then I missed the child welfare world, so I went back after a short six-month stay at GMHC. And then I was recruited to Harlem United to work in supportive housing. Harlem United is another aid service organization that offers housing. And at that time, about a third of the housing units were for families. So I had the promise of working with children still. And that's what, that was my early, my first passion in terms of social work. 
So I took the job at Harlem United, and um, I fell in love with um, HIV AIDS work. I, you know, learned and knew some already, but learned more about the history um, of activism and um, how the activists in the HIV and AIDS movement really changed the world, and I wanted to be part of it. Yeah. We've heard a lot from prior guests on the show just about doing this type of work with such a rich history that getting started, right, becoming a a new activist or becoming a new voice in this movement is almost in some ways daunting because you have these heroes who, who even if they have passed on, have their name looms so large. Talk to our listeners about really starting out and getting your voice out there in that context. Oh my gosh, you're absolutely right. It is scary and daunting, and um, it's not easy, but there's room for more voices, and I think it's honoring the past. And, you know, a lot of people ask me, um, you know, who's the next Larry Kramer? And, you know, Larry Kramer, obviously the founder of Gay Men's Health Crisis, and I don't know that there is the next Larry Kramer. Right. You know, he's one of a kind, and I think... One of, the things that, uh, one of the things that we learn in social work school is to be your authentic self. And activism comes in many, many ways. So I think what the goal for new social workers or new activists is to find their own voice and learn how to best use that voice, um, which I'm learning to do. Um, I don't know that I can do what Larry Kramer did, um, but... Um, I'm learning to use my own voice in the way that I think is most effective. I do not mean to out you in this way, uh, but (laughs) my crack research has told me that you and I are of a similar age, a a very close age. And by the way, we're both Pisces, and that's important to highlight. Oh, great. Look at that. (laughs) And and it's kind of an interesting piece to not only talk about the, the big names that are out there, right, and the heroes who have done this work, but we're also of that age where we, you know, didn't have a lot, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, we didn't have a lot of close gay friends in the 80s because that wasn't our, our chief developmental years. And so it's kind of different approaching this type of work, knowing that how much it affected so many of our peers who, who only have maybe seven or eight years on us, but we weren't necessarily in the mix like some other people were. Is that fair to say? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I grew up, you know, I wasn't of sexual age um, in the early 80s um, when HIV and AIDS first uh, came about. And so I did not experience the, um, you know, the decimation of my peer group the way others have. But I did grow up, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming many people in, my, in our age group did, um, as a gay man, I grew up fearful, yeah. um, fearful of HIV and AIDS. And I think that has defined m- my world in many ways. And so, you know, the best thing, the best defense against fear is accurate knowledge. And that's something that GMHC has been doing from its inception is putting out um, accurate information about HIV and AIDS. And so now, you know, HIV and AIDS is, is many things. It's a health issue. It's a public health issue. It's a community issue. And, um, and we need to address it in all those ways. Yeah. 
one of my favorite topics to talk about. There's one thing coming out to your family as as someone who is LGBTQ. It's another coming out to your family saying, this is the type of, not only am I do I identify as LGBTQ, but I want to immerse my life in this professionally. Did, did you have one of those experiences where telling your family that this is the work you wanted to do was, was fraught in any way? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I am Asian American. And I think as many Asian Americans... Um, have to face uh, telling your parents that you don't want to be a doctor <laughs> is, is, a, is a big deal. And, you know, however, I think my, my journey um, was a little easier because I think I get my spirit of service from my mother. My mother, she calls herself an office manager at a small law firm, but that's not what she does. Um, she is um, the, her law office does immigration law, and she doesn't just manage the office. She works with the clients, and she um, accompanies them accompanies them to, to court. She works with them in a way that is uh, culturally sensitive, um, understanding their needs. So while she won't, she doesn't call herself a social worker. This is exactly where all of my spirit of service comes from. Love it. Love it. Again, listeners, we are here with Kelsey Louie, the Chief Executive Officer of GMHC. I can't quite imagine that any of our listeners, Kelsey, don't know the history of GMHC, but why don't you bring everyone up to speed with, with our cliff notes of where this organization came from? Sure. Gay Men's Health Crisis is the world's first aid service organization founded by um, Larry Kramer, Larry Mass, and four other men who had their first meeting in Larry Kramer's living room. The first services were um, the hotline as well as the buddy program. And um, fast forward to 2017, we're a $28 million organization, 200 employees um, that has an array of services, not just the ones that I spoke about, um, but also mental health services, substance use services. Um, we now offer supportive housing, HIV um, and sexually transmitted infections, testing, including hep C, um, legal services, nutrition services, and a whole array of, uh, an array of services. And all of this is built on 35-year history of meeting the needs of our community, as well as fighting for fair, public policies at the city, state, and federal level for people living with HIV and AIDS. I want to push you on that a little bit. You have people who walk through the door today. I, I'm feeling pretty confident. You have a number of people who walk through the door today to access services, correct? Yes. How important is the history to this mix? You're doing direct service, right? You're doing it in the moment. How important is it that, that we know the history, that the history informs the practices that are happening today? I think it's very important, especially for GMHC, because GMHC has in its DNA activism and serving our community. So our ethos and our pathos is all about serving our community. We're fortunate to be at a time where people are not dying left and right, although you know people are still dying, but not at the levels that they used to be. And so we as an organization have learned to work with fear, grief, a history of understanding how to listen to our consumers to develop even more, uh, more specific and more tailored services. And, you know, the spirit of activism still lives. When the clients want something different, they are not afraid to tell me. <laughs> um, and so therefore, I've had to learn, and I, and I think I was... 
I came in with a good ability to listen, um, to listen to what the clients want, um, to listen to what the staff want, um, because we are a community. Um, and, and I think that is rooted in GMHC's history. Yeah. I would imagine that at certain points in your role, which we're going to talk more specifically about your role, but, but more broadly, that you are doing all this listening and you might hear some competing themes. How do you go about listening and turning that into leading? Yeah. So, you know, I think the way to do that is to combine what the clients are telling us with what the, da- what the data tells us. For example, we know that young gay and bisexual men of color, ages 13 to 24, are the population that's hardest hit by the epidemic. We also know that transgender women of color are also disproportionately impacted by HIV and AIDS. We also know, um, for example, that homelessness or lack of adequate housing was the number one most frequently cited unmet need of our clients. We also know that jobs and job opportunities is hard for, the, for many people, especially the two populations I spoke of. We know that long-term survivors have particular needs around um, uh, emotional and physical needs. And so, so combining the data along with, the, um, with what the clients are telling us helps shape our priorities. The other thing is I don't know, um, you know, we don't have the luxury to pick one population. We need to work at a high capacity meeting the needs of as many groups as we can. Yeah. One of the things I heard about you, because I hear things, Kelsey, I hear things about people, um, and and I'm going to pull a direct quote here. I have these Uh two words, assessment nerd. Is that accurate? Uh (laughs) Yes. Oh, gosh. Um, um, I'm dying to figure out who said it. Not the point of the story. Not the point of the story. (laughs) I am, I'm really, I think it's really important to um, go slow in the beginning in order to go fast later. And we need to figure out and take the time to figure out what we're doing, what we need to do, what the end goal is, where we are. And that speaks, you know, and I think I use that partly as a way to honor the rich history of GMHC, but also, you know, why reinvent the wheel? I like being efficient. So part of that efficiency is understanding what's been done, what's worked, what hasn't worked, and what the real need is. Because oftentimes, and this is something I learned as a social worker, you know, what is identified as the need today may not be the real issue, and there may be um, an underlying issue that's impacting um, the symptoms of what's really happening. So, yes, I do like to spend a lot of time with data and assessing things um, and then moving forward with a strategic plan. Okay, so assessment nerd is accurate. That's what I hear you saying. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It's a resume builder. I think it's a good thing. It's a good thing. We're one of our listeners, and we would encourage all of them to do so, to go to gmhc.org and click on services. It's a lot, Kelsey. Yeah. It's a lot. How do we go about prioritizing services? I mean, obviously, we're going to assess them, right? And so that's that's super important. At at what point do we say, all right, we, we need to maybe add a service or take away a service? So that level of assessment happens on the client level. When, when a client comes in, we do a thorough assessment of what their needs are um, and help get them linked. And because one of the most important things is access to care, right. not just offering it, but making sure it's accessible to people. And sometimes, so for example, someone may, may need or want, let's say, therapy, but they're not quite ready, but they're willing to come in for a hot meal. 
So maybe we can engage them through a hot meal and then later on have them be more comfortable and accept what we call a higher threshold service of therapy. Um, and so that's important. And then, you know, we look at the data and we listen to our clients. So what are the needs? So, for example, the fact that GMHC um, started offering supportive housing in 2016 is a direct um, result of listening to our clients. Nice. Um, clients have asked for it time and time again, or when I've had um, chances to meet with clients, they would complain about their um, lack of adequate housing, and so we worked hard to be able to provide housing. And I guess the downside for the staff is I am constantly pushing the staff to be innovative and creative and to do more with less. And um, if I'm going to ask my staff to do that, then I have to do that as well. So I'm constantly trying to figure out how to be um, more and more efficient. And, at, and we've had some success with that at GMHC. Yeah. How about that AIDS walk? Ah, yes. AIDS walk. In fact, I just came back from AIDS walk San Francisco. Nice. Um, and um, so AIDS Walk is our um, largest fundraising event. And in fact, it's, it's still the largest single-day AIDS fundraiser in the world. Wow. And um, it helps us raise critical funds for services. And the way I describe AIDS Walk to our uh, walkers and our volunteers is that our government funding um, dictates who we can serve and what we can do with that money. And so, for example, um, we get dollars from the government as well as some foundations to offer pantry bags to clients who are HIV positive. So if we only relied on foundation and government money, if, a, if an HIV-negative woman, mother of four, came to our doors and asked for a pantry bag because she was hungry and she wanted to feed her four hungry children, GMHC would have to say no. Uh, but because of events like AIDS Walk, um, that that money that we raise allows us to say yes. And um, I want GMHC to be in the business of saying yes. And so that discretionary money allows us to figure out what the needs are and to fill in the gaps of where government funding um, you know, doesn't provide a service. I have actually never, I don't know that I've ever said this to anybody, but I messed up the AIDS walk. Can I be very upfront with you? I feel like I did it wrong, Kelsey. I brought a group of students. This was back in maybe 2002, and I was working for the School of American Ballet, uh, and I brought a group of students, and we didn't interact with other people. We really just walked it, and that's a pretty athletic group, and we were out of there, I feel like, in maybe, you know, 38, 39 minutes, and that was kind of the end of it. The interaction piece from what I hear from people who do it correctly, is what can be so transformative. Obviously, all the funds raised is, is incredible and, and makes a real and true difference. But the people who participate and interact with other people that day, that can be transformative too. Oh, absolutely. Well, before I go forward, I'll say, if you want to do it again, you're welcome to come next Thank year. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, and there's no wrong way to do it, but I understand what you mean. It is absolutely transformative. I love, love, love AIDS Walk. In fact, that's why I went out to San Francisco. Um, I love it because um, it, it creates such a sense of community um, where 20 to 25,000 people come to support the work that we're doing and to really honor, celebrate, remember those who have passed, those who are currently living with HIV and AIDS. It's a great way to be reminded that the world does care and what I tell my staff is, 
days before AIDS walk, I tell my staff, and I love telling them this, I say, you know, in a few days, 25,000 people are going to come to Central Park to applaud your work. Yeah. And, um, and it's true, and it's so great, and it can be transformative to understand that there are other people out there in our boat. And, um, you know, we have a saying in social work that community saves lives, um, not only does it save lives, it also enriches lives. And so, yeah, so come back and interact with people and share your stories um, and uh, learn about other people's stories. And that is um, one of the benefits of AIDS Walk. Nice. All right, let's take a little shift here. Let's get a little political, because I would imagine that much of your work is political as well, is it not? Yeah, it can be. <laughs> Now, are we talking political with a small P or a capital P? <laughs> let's, let's start with capital P. So we, so we had this election. I don't know if you heard. There was an election last November. And oh, there was. There was. There was. <laughs> this is why we do this, Kelsey. I want to catch you up. Uh, and many of our colleagues doing this HIV and AIDS-related work, there's a lot of fear out there about how this new administration is affecting their work and affecting resources. Talk to our listeners about, about how this new Trump administration affects your work. Yeah, so, I mean, anything that um, threatens the health care or access to health care for our clients, um, we will fight. Um, anything that um, increases stigma or reduces the civil liberties of our clients, people who are HIV positive or uh, people who are LGBT or gender nonconforming, um, anything that puts their rights at risk, we will fight. And over the past several months, there have been some things that um, have been a little scary, um, but we um, certainly will do what we can to have our voices heard, as well as to ensure that our clients get the services that they deserve and that they need. Yeah. We'll go a little little bit littler P and talk mm-hmm. about working with other organizations. There are yeah. a lot of organizations out there. I always do kind of have the fear that there are some organizations that are maybe not working cross-purposes but have such a similar mission. You guys are, are one of the larger organizations out there. How do you approach working with all of the different organizations that are doing work that, that serves similar clientele? Yeah, so you have to approach this work collaboratively. Um, And, you know, it gets difficult. Um, I like to use the word frenemies um, because um, we are friends when it comes to supporting our clients. Right. We are friends when we um, are fighting for better policies for our clients. Um, The system is set up to um, where we need to compete with each other, especially for funding. Um, Government funding is set up in a way where we need to compete against each other for funding. Private donors um, won't give to every single organization. And so so it forces a little bit of competition. So we need to find a way to work together, understanding that um, we're all on the same side. And so I think collaborations will be more important. And um, and I think, you know, providing a safety net for our clients. Um, and also, I think it can be a little inefficient for if a client gets, let's say, one service at Organization A, another service at Organization B, and another service at Organization C. One, you know, I think disjointed or non-coordinated care is certainly less effective 
than coordinated and integrated care, but also I think it uh, um, it would be it would serve clients better if we all worked under one roof. And so that that is my vision for the future: that there is one large umbrella for people living with HIV and AIDS and or for the LGBT community. What stops us from getting there? Can we just not get there? Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm not sure. I, I know. Um, I think, well, gosh, there's a lot of things that get in the way. And I think we all need to agree that that's the right approach. And I think there are a lot of people who do agree. I mean, there are many organizations that I can pick up the phone and um, call, and we will work really, really hard together to uh, meet the needs of our clients. Um, we will refer clients. Uh, we'll accept referrals. And, you know, I think one of the things is currently, you know, one of the benefits of having different organizations is, that um, some clients may succeed better at some organizations um, for whatever reason, whether it's the, um, the, the culture, geography, or, or whatever it is. And so, so yeah, so I, mean, I, I don't know if, uh, if we're ready to do that, but I think I would love to test that to see yeah. if it would work because I believe it would. Well, you and I are ready. That's a good start. Okay. All right. Let's, let's do, do it. it. Let's absolutely do it. You, you referenced this before, but I, I, I want to go into it a little bit more. You know, diversity is, is such a, a piece of the work that we do. How do you go about offering services and making sure that they are stratified and diversified and, you know, are applicable to all the different clientele that might walk through the door? Yeah, that's, uh, we probably have two approaches for that. The first is having clients have direct input into how the services are run. Yeah. Um, so that's one. Um, and then two, um, doing our best to either um, hire people who are of particular demographics, um, who, who match the communities that we serve, or two, to make sure that people are trained to work through differences. Um, and um, that's one of the things um, uh, as social workers we're, we're trained to do, um, but always looking at diversity and understanding empathy as a skill to, to provide services. You may not have, as a provider, you may not have gone through exactly what the client has gone through, but you can understand um, and feel for the client and understand because what I would say is fear, stigma, oppression, health concerns, don't discriminate. And, um, and so if we train our staff um, well, um, then our clients can get the services that they need. Yeah. One would think, listening to everything that we've covered thus far, that talking about a logo might be minutiae. But in fact, last year, when you all made some changes to your logo, they were really significant and symbolic changes to how we approach this work, correct? Yes, yes. You've done your homework. Always. Yeah, so our logo for a while has been um, um, not only magenta, the color was magenta, but it was fight AIDS, love life, and uh, I think is a beautiful logo. Um, but we made three changes. First, we changed our color to red um, to honor the traditional color of HIV and AIDS. Um, part and parcel of what we were talking about that we stand on the shoulders of giants, and we um, want to remember the contributions of the hundreds, if not thousands, of people who were activists and who led the way for us. Um, and we wanted to change fight AIDS to end AIDS, 
um, because that's our goal, and to aid, end AIDS as an epidemic. Um, and in New York State, we have a goal of trying to accomplish that um, by 2020. And we changed love life to live life. Yeah. Um, we wanted all of our services are designed to help people live fulfilling lives regardless of their HIV status. And we wanted to make sure to also tell people who are newly diagnosed um, or at any stage of their diagnosis that they can live fulfilling lives. Nice. So red and AIDS live life. So 2020 is coming up, right? It's, it's a few years away. How are we doing? Ah, that's a good question. We are, um, I think we are progressing. Um, I don't think, whenever you have a goal like that, I don't think you're ever where you want to be. Right. Um, and, um, you know, we say that we have the data and we have the tools to end the epidemic. Um, we know a lot about where the, um, where HIV lives and who it lives with. Um, we have the tools like condoms mm-hmm. and PrEP and PEP and even um, the, the relatively new science that, um, you know, it was once called treatment as prevention. Now it's called undetectable equals untransmittable, the science that tells us, the science that tells us that if you are undetectable um, and on your medication, then you are unable to pass on the virus. And so, so we have tools like that and the data, and what we need is the political will to end the epidemic. And that political will comes in the form of dollars, dollars to support the services that are needed to um, end this epidemic. Yeah. I am paid to do this because I'm a college professor, but I believe it as well that, that we can't really make change unless we're doing this work in an intergenerational way. But we also know that there are a lot of challenges in talking about HIV and AIDS with a younger generation who don't feel maybe the sense of urgency that those of us for whom the history has been so present feel. How do we go about doing this work intergenerationally and, and specifically getting young people involved? Yeah, that's, uh, that's been tough. Yeah. Um, and so I think, one, helping, teaching them the history, teaching them the history of HIV, I think that helps. I think also, um, I think, you know, we're, we're up against the fact that um, we live in a pill culture um, and that um, uh, an HIV diagnosis is no longer a death sentence the way it used to be. Um, but that said, we still have an, an epidemic on our hands. And um, I think the other thing is talking about new strategies to HIV prevention. As so, for example, one of the things that GMHC does is we use um, social networking strategies and we're on social media. And, you know, I can say till I'm blue in the face that a young person should go to the doctor regularly and to talk about sex and to talk about what they're doing and to talk about how um, to take care of their bodies. But if another young person uh, said it to a young person, then that would be much more impactful. So, so we do what we can to have that message um, delivered by someone who looks like the people who are trying to get the message to. I feel like in some way you're saying that you and I don't look 22 anymore. Oh, uh, I'm not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having a hard time accepting that we aren't 22 anymore. So I know, that. right? I, so I keep trying to change the definition of young <laughs> men who have sex with men. Uh. <laughs> 
I love it. I love it. You know, GMHC, we do have to, I know you've been asked this question a million times, but we have to go there. You have in the title there, Gay Men's Health Crisis, and, and I know it's not just gay men involved in the services of this work. That has got to be a push and pull in, in being the chief executive officer of this organization. Yeah, you know, so I think in the past, um, I think one strategy was to try to change gay men's health crisis to GMHC, but then everyone used to say GMHC, formerly known as gay men's health crisis, so (laughs) that defeated the purpose. So, you know, I think so the strategy that we've tried to employ is to say, we are gay men's health crisis. We serve everybody. In fact, uh, 25 to 27 percent of our clients are women, and uh, about... 75% 75% of our clients identify as LGB, um, LGBT. Um, and so um, what we do is we talk about honoring the fact that our name honors the history of this organization. And so, so it makes the conversation a little longer, but um, not too long. And I think it's important that we do honor our history. Yeah. Um, but yes, but that is something that we are up against constantly, um, especially if we don't have the opportunity to have that conversation. Um, but we do think that, or at least I think that, given the fact that the um, that gay men, gay men in particular, are still carrying the burden of HIV um, in the U.S., is still reason enough to keep its name. Yeah. You're working long hours, Kelsey. Resources are never exactly what they want to be. We have these aspirational and incredible goals for 2020. There's a lot of moving parts, right? So I'm, I'm feeling confident this is, this is a stressful job. How does this work feed you? Wow, that's a great question. When I see a staff member excited about achieving something, especially with a client, or when I understand that a client is grateful for our services, or when I see change that happens, and sometimes it takes a lot of time, I just am reminded about the, how awe-inspiring this work is. You know, oftentimes, whether it's at AIDS Walk or our gala or our holiday meals where we serve close to 500 people, I take a brief moment by myself, just to look around the room and to remember um, the impact that GMHC has today and has had over the past 35 years. And it's overwhelming, Um, certainly overwhelming. Yeah, I love it. Uh, Such good stuff. What can our listeners do to support this important work? Ah, there's a lot. One, you can donate. Uh, two, you can volunteer if you're local or if you're visiting, you can volunteer um, and, um, and, and learn what it's like to do this work. Um, and three, you can talk to somebody, especially a young person, about HIV and AIDS and sex. And we can do what we can to fight stigma. And um, any one of those three things would help in a big way. And without question, my favorite query to put to a guest who is in a position such as yours, I know you're not doing this work alone, so I give you the floor, sir, to extol the virtues and praise upon your, your staff, your volunteers, your board. Oh, thank you. GMHC has the most dedicated staff I've ever seen. Um, they are smart. They are devoted to their work and they care. Um, We have so many, so many 
um, people. Um, so I won't start to name names, but we have people in every single department who stay late um, without question. We have staff members who will help clients on their way out the door. And so many times I know that people, um, people plan delayed or what they were going to do can't happen because they decide to help. And they decide because it is a choice. They decide to help clients. Whenever I get to thank my staff, I tell them, you know, I thank them for everything that I know that they do. But in particular, I thank them for all the things that I don't know that they do, because I'm sure that's a larger piece of the pie. The board of directors are, you know, they're volunteers. They are a group of volunteers who have put themselves in a leadership position, and GMHC would not be where it is today if it weren't for the devoted um, board of directors. Um, and the rest of the volunteers, um, the work that they do is so critical, and GMHC relies so heavily on our volunteers. 200 staff cannot possibly serve 12,500 clients, and so we rely so heavily on our volunteers. And I have, um, I, I, I've had this campaign that I call One GMHC, um, which is the idea that we all need to work together um, in order to do our work. And the more time we spend fighting each other, the less time we have to fight HIV, AIDS, oppression, stigma, um, and all the other things that uh, cause stress in our clients' lives. Yeah. Let's finish with a little bit of advice. And, and in particular, I, w I would like to do some geographical advice because not everybody lives in New York City, right? Not everybody's yeah. in San Francisco or L.A. where the services are so, so rich. It's not to say that we could not support you with so many more resources and and please people, let's let's do that and donate more and, and do everything we can to support this life-saving work and life-affirming work and, and love-affirming work. But we have all of these different communities across the country who, who want to do a similar type of work, but just don't have the same demographics or the same support. What advice do you have in, in really putting together services and, and being comprehensive in approaching HIV and AIDS-related work? Yeah, um, what I would say is um, work with your state departments of health, um, you know, I, or work, start, start small. Um, start small. Um, ask for help for, from cities that have done it well. In fact, I'm part of a national coalition um, to end the AIDS epidemic called Act Now, and part of our work is to help other jurisdictions um, to develop plans to end the AIDS epidemic. And sometimes it, you just need one person to start. And, you know, that's the hardest person to get. And each additional person gets a little easier and uh, to not give up. And sometimes you have to start small, um, but certainly ask for help. Um, you know, there are resources that, that um, where, you know, you, you can use cross state lines. For example, GMHC's hotline um, is accessible across the country. So, um, I, you know, I think other jurisdictions should do what they can to seek the advice of, of cities or jurisdictions that have had uh, the better fortune of having government support.
There you go. Kelsey Louie, listeners, is the chief executive officer of GMHC. You must right this second stroll on over to gmhc.org. There is so much information on there on services and HIV info and how to get tested. Holy cow, everybody, you need to go get tested and, and know your status and preventing HIV and, of course, getting involved. They need your support. And if you are in a position to support them, you should do so immediately. One of the things that I love about you, Kelsey, because I've been following GMHC, we, we last had the executive director of GMHC on our show. It's got to be like eight years ago. So wow. obviously, we, we've been following you so closely and support your work enormously. And specifically for you, I, I can only imagine stepping into this role where, again, our heroes have cast such huge shadows uh, in a very affirming way of, of this work and the rich history. And we've seen any number of our colleagues go into this work and, and just kind of buckle under that because it's so much. And you've done the exact opposite. You really have carved out your own place with your own style and embraced your strengths. And GMHC could not be stronger for you using your voice in the way that you are using it. It's authentic and it's making a difference. Thank you so much. GMHC.org. Kelsey, please tell your staff and your board and your volunteers, please keep doing what you're doing. Will do. Thank you so much. You with the sad eyes. to take courage in a world full of people you can lose sight of it all in darkness still inside you make you feel so small all right folks and we are back well we still have tons of time left on this week's episode to get to all of the latest lgbtq news that's out there there's so much to catch up on i've actually been in guatemala for the past two weeks just exploring that incredible country although i was housed really in antigua for two weeks so i didn't see the whole country but i bring a group of students there every other year and it was amazing to just go there without students this time and explore life and and see what it's like being I spoke to so many different gay men there about their experiences in Guatemala and nothing that I recorded for this show, but it's incredible to talk to people from other countries and and find out what culture is like there. So if you have never left your environment, my gosh, I'm not even just saying leave the country and go someplace else, though if you have the opportunity to do so, please, please do so. But just get out of your community. Get out of your community and learn what's going on. There's a great big world out there, and that is an incredible thing. Let's start with some news from my wonderful world of higher education. A Mormon University professor has been fired after refusing to renounce her support for LGBT rights. Ruthie Robertson, an adjunct professor at the Mormon church-affiliated Brigham Young University in Idaho, she posted on Facebook last month something that was supportive of LGBT people. The Pride Month-inspired message urged the church to change its position on homosexuality. The politics professor wrote this, quote, This is my official announcement and declaration that I believe heterosexuality and homosexuality are both natural and neither is sinful. I will never support the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin, because that sin is part of who that person is. Most Christian faiths label homosexuality as a sin based on archaic writings. A few hateful verses in the Old Testament have led to hundreds of years of prejudice, hatred, violence, and pain. If we're going to follow the Old Testament and use it to justify a hateful stance, there are several other things we need to start condemning and punishing. 
That was one big post there on Facebook from Ruthie Robertson, an adjunct professor at Brigham Young University. Well, unsurprisingly, that did not sit well with Brigham Young University. The post went viral, and despite Robertson's insistence that her account was private and she was not Facebook friends with any of her students, the university sprung into action. She said the authorities implicitly threatened to let her go from her job if she didn't retract her pro-LGBT statement. She immediately attempted to mollify the university, posting that her views did not represent those of Brigham Young University, but it proved fruitless. She said she could not renounce or take back her views because she wanted her LGBT friends to know they had her support. She said this, she told a news organization this, quote, I could not take it back, and she is still standing strong. The university, their policy prohibits them from commenting on personnel issues, but it is looking like she has been fired. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. You cannot issue a positive message of support. She wasn't saying down with the church. In fact, she's saying she has no plans to leave the church, but she said something positive. She said something supportive of the LGBT community. That did not sit well with Brigham Young University, and that is that. Over in the wonderful world of entertainment, Andrew Garfield, actor Andrew Garfield, he has accused media outlets of twisting his comments about being gay without the physical act. Two weeks ago, the amazing Spider-Man and Hacksaw Ridge star said he wouldn't rule out having a relationship with a man in the future. The actor, who is currently starring in Angels in America at the British National Theater, also talked about binge-watching RuPaul's Drag Race. He said this, quote, My only time off during rehearsals. Every Sunday I would have eight friends over and we would just watch Ru. This is my life outside of this play. But it was the next quote that sparked most of the backlash from unhappy fans. He said this, quote, I am a gay man right now, just without the physical act. That's all. End quote. Twitter predictably dragged the hell out of the Academy Award-nominated actor. One user commented this, quote, Speaking of, I am a rich man without the physical act. Another person parodied the star, tweeting, Andrew Garfield, I love food, but hate the way it tastes. Garfield has fired back. He said that all he wanted to do was properly represent a community he had felt has accepted him and that he had meant no offense. Speaking to BBC Newsbeat, he said this, quote, that's of course not what I meant at all. That discussion was about this play and how deeply grateful I am that I get to work on something so profound. It's a love letter to the LGBTQ community. Let me just say this. So was his quote a little cringy? Sure. Can we maybe not attack someone who is out there and being supportive of the LGBTQ community? I mean, cut the guy a little bit of slack. There are any number of actors out there, and certainly I'm not naming any names, Kevin Spacey, who, you know, are widely known to be gay and have not done everything they can do to support the LGBTQ community. Here we have one of our allies who is out there supporting us and is engaged in content that promotes our community in incredible ways. And yet, you know, he definitely had a little bit of a slip up there and not the best quote ever, but let's put it in its full context. Let's cut him a little slack. I'm all for Andrew Garfield. So there's that.
A woman who says she was tricked into spending nearly $70,000 on gay cure therapy, she has launched a lawsuit against the therapist who forced the treatment. The lawsuit was filed by the National Center for Lesbian Rights on behalf of Catherine McCobb, who was victim to gay cure therapy for several years. In the lawsuit, McCobb explained that she had gone to the therapist, Lloyd W. Wiley, or Willie, I'm not sure, W-I-L-L-E-Y, so Lloyd W., let's say Willie, seeking help for issues not concerning her sexuality. However, she insists that he became fixated on her lesbian identity, and over the period of eight years, he manipulated her into trying to change her sexuality. The therapist allegedly tried to get her to become softer, sexier, and more feminine. Huh. And he tried to get her to date one of his male patients. What the heck kind of therapist is this? She explained that she had trusted her therapist, but because of this trust, she said this, quote, I was defrauded of tens of thousands of dollars as a result. She claimed that the therapist had tried to rewire her brain to change her sexual orientation. The therapist allegedly believed her lesbian identity was unnatural. He also reportedly told her that if she tried hard enough, she could become as womanly and heterosexual as other women in the group. Shannon Price Minter, the legal director for the National Center for Lesbian Rights, said the therapist's action had been illegal. Minter said this, quote, Therapists who exploit vulnerable people by taking their money based on false claims that being lesbian or gay is unnatural and that counseling can change a person's sexual orientation are engaging in fraud. Our complaint alleges that our client, in this case, paid tens of thousands of dollars based on false promises that therapy could change her attraction to women charging a person money based on such bald-faced misrepresentations violates California's consumer protection laws. Again, this is the point where we remind people that conversion therapy, that cure therapy does not work. It absolutely does not work. In most cases, it does harm. It can increase tendencies towards depression and anxiety and certainly suicidality. And the kicker of all this, it is not illegal in most states. It is barely a fraction of the states in this country that have said this fraudulent act, and that's me saying it is a fraudulent act because, you know, it is, it doesn't work and it does harm, but only a small handful of states in this country have said, and we are barring that fraudulent act. When we are out there saying, oh yeah, everything's everything's equal, everything's equal, it's not. We are not there yet. There is so much more work to do. But let's talk about some really cool progress. Ladies and gentlemen, meet the gender-fluid superhero who has been created by one of the giants of the comic book industry. DC Comics is set to introduce a character called Dr. Endless, and Dr. Endless is the first gender-fluid person in the new DC universe. The jet-black hair of Dr. Endless is interrupted by a dashing white lock, a pattern which is reflected by the Doctor's sharp monochrome suit, and of course the best part of the Doctor's ensemble is the psychedelic rainbow-lapelled, rainbow-lined trench coat which billows dramatically behind them. 
very, very cool. Inspired by Neil Gaiman's comic book series, The Sandman, the hero will be introduced to readers in the first edition of Suicide Squad, The Black Files, this August. DC Comics is one of the most recognizable companies in modern life, having been engaged in an endless turf war with Marvel Comics, which I'm a Marvel Comics guy, but DC is doing great stuff. But Dr. Endless will be making their debut in August. Why do we cover stuff like this? And I've said it before, I'll say it again. Stuff like this makes a huge difference. We want to hit saturation point. For many kids, and hi, by the way, I was one of them. My comic books are all sitting right behind me. Last time I was in New Jersey, my mom said, take all these comic books back to Cleveland with you. They're all sitting in a closet right behind my studio right here where I'm recording. This would have made a huge difference. LGBT characters in comics, to see myself represented in that way, it is affirming. It makes a difference. So I am all for Dr. Endless, and we'll see what kinds of powers Dr. Endless has. Very exciting stuff. The White House. The White House says it was concerned. They were concerned at remarks by the leader of Chechnya, who suggested any gay people in his Russian Republic should be shipped to Canada. Chechnyan leader Ramzan Kadyrov probably mangled that one, has faced international criticism since a Russian newspaper reported this spring that his security forces had detained some 100 gay men, torturing or killing some of them. The Associated Press has spoken to some of the victims. In an interview over the weekend, Kadyrov insisted that there are no gay people in Chechnya and added that if there are any, they should be taken to Canada. Well, the U.S. State Department spokeswoman Heather Nauert told reporters in Washington this week that the State Department found those remarks to be, quote, very concerning and also upsetting. Very concerning and also upsetting. Unsurprisingly, many people in the U.S., many LGBT advocates all over this country, myself included, would like the, you know, White House to say more than very upsetting and concerning. Very upsetting and concerning is true, but we probably need to do something about it. Illinois Governor Bruce Rauner, fresh off a brutal budget battle with legislators, had some more trouble this week. He had to fire a key aide he had just hired who turned out to have a history of racist, homophobic, and sexually explicit tweets. Do we not check these things, people? We should certainly check these things. Rauner, a conservative Republican, had hired Ben Tracy as his body man, a position described by the Chicago Sun-Times as a hand-picked assistant chosen to travel with him. Well, it was his first day on the job, and then it was his last day on the job because he was using horrible language there on Twitter, and so he is no longer the body man for Illinois Governor Bruce Rauner. Unbelievable. We should check these things out. Just putting that out there. You know. Hey guys, if you've not purchased my book yet, you can do so right away. Strolling over to Amazon and type in my name, Ken Schneck, S-C-H-N-E-C-K, and you can purchase seriously. What am I doing here? The Adventures of a Wandering and Wandering Gay Jew. And check out those reviews on Amazon. It has been an incredible, an incredible ride, and the feedback has been just overwhelming. So go pick that up. If you have any guest ideas for our show, we're about to enter a booking phase. So anybody you are thinking of that you think would be great on our 
show, whether they are local, national, international. We don't care. We just want to talk to people who are using their voices to make a difference. Send me an email at ken at thisshowissogay.com, and we will try to get them on the show. We want more people on the show. Or if you have any feedback whatsoever, every single email gets answered, ken at thisshowissogay.com. Our huge, huge thanks to Kelsey Louie for spending so much of his time with us on this week's episode. The work that is being done at GMHC, Gay Men's Health Crisis, is life-saving, life-affirming work. It is all about love. It is all about life, and they are doing some incredible work. Go check them out at gmhc.org. You guys, you know what to do. Get out there. Go use your voice the way you know how to use it to make a difference for your LGBTQ brothers and sisters, for all of our allies out there. Use your voice, make a difference, and while you're out there, please remember, why be gay when you can be so gay?